Well, good morning, Saints. Good morning, sinners. Glad that we're all here. Don't forget to vote tomorrow. Just need to say that in case you didn't know there's something going on in our nation. Um, just uh, coming down after the, uh, the high, the craziness of the last few weeks in regarding, regarding what we've done with uh, Matthew 25, with being um, the challenge and then being um, the challenge and then uh, chosen and then the after party to only celebrate that we ended up sponsoring all 156 children out of Taveta in Kenya. And uh, thrilled for that. And so I've been getting a lot of uh, questions and, you know, we can write letters. Yeah, that's great. But can we send parcels? And the short answer is yes, but there's a certain way to do and what not to do. And like you can send a, a T-shirt. Maybe you want to go to the dollar store, get some stuff. But there's certain things you don't want to put in there. Uh, I'm going to get all that information and share it with uh, those people who have sponsored kids so that uh, if you want to send parcels or whatever, there's a right way and a wrong way. And uh, we want to make that clear. Also, something was presented to me uh, by the World Vision staff was, asked the question, could we ever go see our kids and visit them? And uh, the answer was yes. So I was thinking, well, wouldn't that be cool if a whole bunch of us from Seoul one day just all boarded on an airplane and went to Taveta just to visit our sponsored children? So maybe in a year, a year and a half, or maybe two years, we can get together and do something along that lines. That would be a whole lot of fun. So I'm just throwing that out there. But before we go any further, let's just pray, shall we? Thank you for our country. And God, today we carefully pray for our future. And we acknowledge that you place leaders in power. And so we pray for our nation today. God, keep our land glorious and free. That's my prayer. We want you to be present today as you always are. And we need, you to, we need to be aware of you in new ways and God, uh, we want you actually to speak to us and to challenge us. Show us things today that need your healing touch. And as we leave this place, we know that you are in the process of restoring us. May we be focused without distraction as you speak into our souls. May we hear your voice. I pray that you'd make these passages clear, that we'd see our story and this story. And uh, in these big ideas, we need to find out our healing and hope and know that you'll be with us as you always are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So open your Bible, your iPhone, iPad, eyelids, I don't really care as long as you're following along with me. Let's make this happen. Open it to the beginning of Matthew chapter 26 where Jesus, he begins to speak prophetically and uh, begins to shed light to his disciples as what's going to happen. As a matter of fact, in this chapter, chapter 26, we're moving into a crisis. And uh, Jesus is preparing and getting ready to suffer and to die willingly uh, and of his own accord to save all believers. Last week with Pastor Jordan, we looked at Jesus being anointed at Bethany and uh, how indignant the disciples were at the so-called waste of perfume being poured out all over Jesus' feet, that it should have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. What Matthew is doing here, he's now actually writing this, but he's actually making a contrast, a huge contrast for his readers. You know, the, he contrasts this woman's devotion with Judas's betrayal. We move from an encounter where Jesus is honored 
um, uh, by this woman and her emotional offering to Judas basically having enough. That's it. That's the last straw. And so it's interesting because the gospel accounts all start giving different viewpoints of the story and you can read all from all the different aspects in the gospels and Jesus Judas sorry is identified as the speaker who said you know we should have sold this and given the money to the poor you know again John points out from his perspective and and really what everybody else knew uh, post uh, <laughs> writing was that Judas was a thief and Judas was more concerned that he was get, you know money was being taken out of his hand by pouring it all over Jesus' feet than actually selling it and putting it into the coffers. And it's interesting, also, when we look at the book of Matthew, this is only the second time in the entire book where Judas is actually named by Matthew. I'd almost wonder if, you know, Matthew has a few issues with Judas. <coughs> Excuse me. The first reference of Judas is actually in Matthew chapter 10, and now it's now verse, uh, chapter 26 where he, he actually mentions him again. So we pick it up at verse 14. And it says then, <coughs> excuse me, one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and he asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So the Pharisees and the chief priests, they're waiting for the right opportunity to arrest Jesus. Judas makes a deal with these guys. They want to get rid of Jesus. They pay him 30 coins of silver. And he promises that he's going to lead them and set Jesus up. He pretends to be Jesus' friend. He pretends to be Jesus' follower but he's a deceiver. He's going to lead Jesus' enemies right to him. Now, again, we know as we read in Scripture that Jesus knew that his time on earth was coming to an end. He knew that very soon he's going to be arrested, that he's going to be put on trial, that he's going to be lied about, that he's going to be killed on a, on a cross. He knows this. And Jesus allows all these things because he, he came to be the perfect sacrifice that would take away the sins of the world. And yet Jesus wanted to share a special meal with his friends before these things happened. The Bible tells us it's the time of the Passover, the Passover feast, which God has actually instructed his people to celebrate every year. So this feast that Jesus is participating is not his first meal, but it's been practiced since um, the Israelites left Egypt. We read, on verse 17, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and said, hey, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city a certain man and tell him, the teacher says my appointed time is near, I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. So it's interesting. The place where Jesus was going to do this meal, this Passover celebration, is actually a secret location. Only his two closest disciples know, and obviously the men who host it. And we, you have to speculate, you have to wonder, is it possible that, uh, you know, that Jesus wanted to escape the crowds? He, was, he, he just needed that time alone. He, he, or is it possible that he didn't want the location to be known to others so that Judas wouldn't have an opportunity to go tell the chief priests where they were until after his special meal? 
So Jesus suffered, uh, Jesus, sorry, longed to share this intimate time with his disciples before his suffering. We read that in Luke. He says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I won't eat again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Jesus wants to eat with his buddies. This is what we see. Now, sociologists across the spectrum have encouraged families to do one simple thing to maintain connection with one another, and that's to eat. Now, the issue just isn't eating, of course. That's a non-negotiable for us. The issue, what sociologists are telling us, is that we as families must eat together. Now, the family dinner may seem a little cute, a little outdated in this crazy busy age that we live in, but there's something of huge importance here that we're missing out on. We often wolf down our meals, our bagged meals that we get through some uh, speaker, right, in order to get off to another sports practice or game. Family members often eat dinner, when you think about it, from a desk, or maybe they're alone in their rooms, or they're eating dinner, texting friends, or playing video games. That's a family dinner. However, when we all sit around a table... A family dinner around a table creates a connection. Something that sociologists say that we need, interesting enough. And as Christians, we know this. We, we know this from church. And too often we, we, we talk about creating community in our churches and, and we're talking about some sort of program. Well, the Bible says little or nothing about programs. The focus of community is instead more often around a table. It's around a common meal when we read the Scriptures. And we see that Jesus is constantly eating and drinking with people. Now, we read in the New Testament that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We also see that the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Now, when you look at the top two there on the screen, we see the first two statements are his purpose. Why did Jesus come? Well, he came to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom to seek and to save the lost. The third statement there is his method. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. And it can be said that Jesus did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a a pitcher of wine. Now, this is why eating and drinking was so important in the mission of Jesus. It was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of friendship with tax collectors. It was a sign of friendship with sinners. His excess of food and excess of grace are linked together. In the ministry of Jesus, meals were this enacted grace. It it was community. It was mission. Jesus recognized that meals were a means of anticipating the kingdom. He talks about the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's an acting grace in community. It's sharing, the sharing of our abundance, the abundance of God. And as it, we actually now have a taste of what eternity will be like when we all gather together for the marriage supper of the Lamb, as Scripture refers to it. Now, again, in our passage of Scripture, we often call this the Last Supper. Because it's the last meal that Jesus ate before he willingly gives up his life. Now during the meal, Jesus explained to his disciples all that was about to happen to him. But they they haven't understood everything. As a matter of fact, he's been telling them for a long time and the disciples haven't really gotten it. And it's all gotten over their head. 
And so he tells them, look, we need to have a special meal. We need to get together. We need to eat in order to remember the sacrifice. Basically, I'm going to make for all people. So he pulls them all together. And before I go on, I want to talk about Passover because it takes a turn here. And it's really important that we understand it. So Passover is when God asked Charlton Heston to go back to Egypt. Now, some of you get that. Others, it's just like, what's he talking about? Don't worry about it. It's a dad joke. So Moses, God asks Moses to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt, to take them out. And so Moses goes and he says to Pharaoh, he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh laughs and denies Moses' requests. And then, of course, you know, a series of nine plagues start coming towards the Egyptians. And Scripture tells us that Pharaoh's heart is hardened by God, which is actually quite interesting because there are at least four occasions where God hardens a person's heart. One occasion where he actually hardens a whole nation's heart. But he hardens Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh refuses to let him go. And that's a theological thing that you can sit on for a while, and we'll address it some other time. So after all these nine plagues come in, and Harold's Herald, Herald, heart is hardened, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, God finally says, look, at number 10's coming your way. Number 10's a doozy, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill the firstborn amongst every Egyptian son. Wow. So the firstborn son of every Egyptian was going to be killed unless they took the blood of the lamb, as, as God ordained and spelled it out to the Israelites, and wiped it on the doorposts according to God's instruction. And so the Jews, they slaughtered their lambs, and they, they took the blood, they wiped it on their, their doorposts, so that when the angel of death came, he would pass over their homes and kill only the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. And so from that moment on, history tells us that the Jews celebrated the Passover meal. And so the Passover is celebrated every year. That story is retold every year so people wouldn't forget. It's important. It's important for the Jewish community. Every element of that meal tells a part of their story. Now, God made it clear that not only would he spare his people, but he would also lead them to a life of freedom. They couldn't imagine uh, that this was even possible, so God actually now makes them four promises. These promises are found in Exodus chapter 6, and they become the foundation for the Passover meal. And God says, uh, Therefore say to the Israelites, I'm the Lord your God, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you on as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So, when you have a Passover meal, and you go to the home, and you have a meal, there are four cups of wine that are actually laid out for you to drink. There's a fifth one, but we won't get into it. It's called the cup of Elijah. It doesn't really play a part of the meal, but these four cups of wine play a part of the meal. And I, I just got to say this because I know some people are probably just turning over. It's Safeway, okay? That's all I'm saying. So there's four cups of wine. And it tastes gross. I just <laughs> and they, they all represent, at the Passover meal, the, 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 the four promises of God. I will free you from... Your oppression. I will take you out, is that, that first one. I will rescue you from your slavery. I, I will save you. I will deliver you. Um, I will redeem you with a powerful arm of great acts of judgment, right? I will redeem you. I will 
claim you as my own people. I will be your God. I will take you as a nation. They each have a specific significance. Uh, uh, It reveals God's presence in a distinct and dramatic way as is explained in the Passover meal. Now the first cup is based on, I will bring you out of your oppression. This was the introductory cup in the Passover meal. They would actually water it down a little bit and uh, it begins, the Passover begins at nightfall. It's important. Everybody comes together. The family gathers around the table. There's an expectation. It's supper time. You can smell it in the house. It's so good. And then the, it begins with the, the first cup mixed with water and wine. And the father begins with a formal blessing over the cup. And he would hold the cup up and he would say a blessing that, you know, blessed are you, O God, ruler of the world, creator of the fruit of the vine. Now, some even go a little bit further and would add, Blessed are you who sanctifies our people Israel and the festivals. We thank you for enabling us to gather in friendship to observe the festival and freedom just as for many centuries the Passover Seder has brought together family and friends to retell the events that led to our freedom so that we may be one with Jews everywhere who perform this ancient ritual linking us with our historic past. As we relive each event in our people's ancient struggle and celebrate their emergence from slavery to freedom, we pray that all of us may keep alive in our hearts, our love, our liberty. May we dedicate our lives to the abolition of all forms of tyranny and injustice. And again, the the blessings change and they're different to some degree, but the form is what, what was taking place this night with Jesus and his boys. So I can imagine Jesus holding the cup up and doing the blessing over the glass of wine. After the blessing, the food is brought out. It includes unleavened bread. It includes bitter herbs. There's a bowl of sauce. There's a a roasted lamb. The lamb itself is called the body in traditional Jewish sources. And the appetizers are also brought up. And yet, all this food is coming out, and it's not the meal yet. And then the second cup is lifted. This is the cup of deliverance. I will rescue you. I'll rescue you physically, but also mentally from a slavery mindset. And then the father would proclaim or he would talk about what God did for Israel and Egypt. And that's usually a a, a precursor to a question. If if there was a a son in the room, the son, the oldest son would ask the question. Otherwise, a child would ask the question, why is this night different from other nights? And it's it's part of the tradition. It's part of retelling the story. And the child's question is connected to the drinking of this second cup. And the father would answer by quoting scripture, specific sections of scripture. Deuteronomy uh, 26 verses 5 to 11. And the father and the son would have this exchange and uh, it would display how the Passover meal looks. And they would look back to the exodus and the redemption of the Israelites uh, received by God in Egypt. And they would begin to tell the story And then the father goes from the story, he begins to explain the different parts of the meal and what they represent, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, the lamb. He would explain the significance of the the meal. It was essentially the the center part of the meal. They would express their thanksgiving to God. They would then burst into song. We don't sing around the tables, do we? But they would burst into song. They would sing what was known as the halal, the praise. And they would sing Psalm 113 and Psalm 114. That's what they would do. 
And so that's what's going on. So you have to imagine that this is what Jesus is doing with his boys in this room. They've already gone through two cups. And then we read, while they were eating, right? The hors d'oeuvres are coming out, the food's coming out. Truly, I tell you, one of you are going to betray me. You can see somebody gnawing on a bone and all of a sudden stop at that very moment. Scripture says they were sad. They began to say to him one after another, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. The one who has, Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand in the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it was written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him that he had not been born. Then Judas, Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered him, You have said, excuse me, you have said so. It's interesting that Jesus uses the occasion of the Passover celebration to actually release Judas to his evil intent. But here's a thought. That could be any one of us around the table. Judas gets the hardest rap, and I get it. But David Wilkerson says this of Judas. He says, when you think about it, it's just fascinating. He was handicapped. <laughs> handicapped. He was a hand-picked disciple of Jesus Christ, a preacher of the gospel, a healer of the sick, a traveling companion of Jesus. He was so trusted, he was made treasurer of the apostolic evangel evangelistic team. He wasn't elected to the position. Jesus personally chose Judas for the job. And when you think about that, each and every one of us has been chosen. And if we've been chosen and we identify as believers, as followers of Jesus, have we ever betrayed Jesus by our actions? By our anger? By our sin? Are we any better than Judas? Do we turn from light to darkness? Do we let temptation consume us? Do we let our passions drive us? Do we put our selfishness before any sacrifice? Do we sell out? Are we like Judas and maybe sometimes don't even know that we've done it? Wilkerson goes on, he adds that Satan needed a Judas. In fact, he, he actually looks for weaknesses. And we see that in this upcoming passage where he has Judas. And then next week we'll be looking at Peter. But what about you or me? And when you think about it, the disciples, these guys all lived with each other for three years. They lived three years together with Jesus. Even up to the very end, right up to this night, no one, none of the disciples knew that there was a betrayer amongst them. They didn't feel any difference in the way that Jesus treated Judas. And I think this is an outstanding testimony to Jesus' patience and love. They're eating and suddenly they're shocked. They're wondering, well, who's, who's going to betray? Like, what, what are you talking about? It, Jesus, is it, it's not me, is it? Like, and while they were sitting and eating, Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, hey, take, eat, this is my body. And so Jesus takes this bread and he reminds them that this, this bread is, is his body 
that's going to be given to them. So you got to think, they're all sitting around the table. And so this is matzah, and uh, it's also called unleavened bread. Uh, it's the type of bread that would be eaten during Passover that actually must be eaten during Passover. And the Jews ate this bread when they escaped from Egypt. And some people had pointed out the following, which is interesting. You can do what you want. But if you take a look at this bread, you'll notice that there are, there are stripes on it, right? From its cooking, its baking. I'm not sure if you can see it from here, but it's there. And some people will point out that, you know, Jesus was about to be eaten. He says, you know, this is my body. I'm about to be beaten. And the whippings would make stripes on his back. Bible says that by Jesus' stripes we're healed or we're saved from sin. If you look a little closer, you'll also see that there are holes in it. Nails were going to be forced into Jesus' hands and feet in order for him to hang on a cross. The Bible says that Jesus was pierced, right? For our sins, Isaiah 53. And this bread is flat because there's no yeast in it. See, yeast makes things rise. Yeast makes things puffed up like pride, right? So yeast in the scripture is a symbol for sin. Because sin makes us puffed up. So there's no yeast in this bread. Remember, Jesus says, this is my body. Well, this, if this is his body, that means there's no yeast. That means there's no sin in Jesus. And so he breaks it. Now, it's interesting because in Scripture, none of Jesus' bones were broken, his, but his body was broken for us. And so he takes this bread and he breaks it. And he himself, as Scripture tells us, he is the bread of life. And, and he passes it out amongst the disciples and he has them divided amongst themselves. And in essence, when he says, this is my body, he is distributing himself amongst them. And their eating of the bread makes a profound, internalized relationship experience for them. Their minds are going, what's going on? And Jesus gives the bread to Judas. Knowing full well that he would betray him. As a matter of fact, again, it was pr prophesied, Psalm 41.9, my close intimate friend with whom I trusted, with whom I shared my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is holding this bread as a gracious act of kindness. For Judas to receive it was a wicked act of betrayal. And this encounter is interesting because it shows human and divine points of view that are taking place all around this table. God's point of view is that this treachery that was predicted, it was prophesied in the Old Testament. We get that. It was part of God's plan, and we get that. The human point of view, on the other hand, is interesting because the human point of view was that G Judas was fully responsible for his actions the entire time. That's to say, God's design plus human action is not necessarily in conflict. God is 100% in control at the same time that we are 100% responsible for our choices. And I think that's a paradox. As a matter of fact, there's a whole bunch of paradox that takes place here. Because then Judas 
Once this happens, once he's called out, so to speak, and only he and Jesus get it because the other guys don't clue in because he leaves. The other, the other guys are looking at Jesus leaving the room, Judas leave, leaving in the room, and they're thinking, oh, he's going to go buy something for the poor or whatever. He's got something to do. But he leaves. And so you have to imagine, right before his death, Jesus knows he's going to die, and he's sitting there going, and he looks at the rest of the guys, and he says, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember me. And one of the reasons why is remembering the actions of Jesus reveals the character of God. So that in your darkest moments, your darkest moments, you still believe that he loves you. Remember he says, do this, this body, this blood. He's saying, remember what I did. Remember me in the garden. Remember me crying over Jerusalem. Remembering, remember my patience with sinners. Remember my lack of patience with the religious crazies. Remember my compassion. Remember my healing. Remember my invitations. Remember where you've come from. Jesus is drawing them back. That's interesting because something I've noticed with people who get saved later in life Remember what life was like before Christ came in. So you have these people who get saved later in life, and then you got this whole other group of people who got saved like when they were four days old. They have a harder time remembering. And so I say to those, this is where Scripture comes in and is so important. It's so important for you to understand that you were born dead in your trespasses and sins. To remember that there was a price that was paid. To remember the things that he taught. To remember who he is and what he has called us to do. We need to get into the scriptures. And we need to remember we, we can't forget. Scripture then says, took the third cup. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks. In other words, he did the blessing. Blessed are you. He gave it to them, the third cup. He said, now drink, drink it from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The third cup, the cup of redemption, as it's called. God's promise to redeem his people, to restore them to the greatness and lead them to their true purpose in life. This third cup is where the supper actually officially begins in the whole process. We've already done two, but this is where it kicks off. And the family would finally get to eat the lamb and all the other unleavened bread. And the, it, it, It's interesting because the articles tell us that customs have changed over time and it's really hard to figure out how this actually is staged originally. But it seems that there, there was a blessing over the bread, uh, that there was a serving of the hors d'oeuvres, um, and... Uh, Eventually, the main course is eaten. And once the meal was completed, the father would again recite that blessing over the, the third cup, and it was consumed. So this is where we are. So Jesus breaks the bread and then offers the cup. And now the wine is a symbol of Jesus' blood. He tells us that soon his blood would be poured out. And of course, this would happen when he was beaten and nailed to the cross. Jesus said that it would happen... Uh, this would happen so that sins of the people would be forgiven. Jesus makes himself the final perfect sacrifice that God required to take away sin, according to Hebrews 10.21. 
everyone who believed in him would be saved from the punishment of his or her sin. So then Jesus says, look, now remember, this cup's empty. Right? It's gone. It's done. <coughs> In our passage, he says, I tell you, I'm not going to drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So what Jesus is now talking about is this fourth cup. What's it called? It's called the cup of praise. It's, it's the remainder of the halal psalms that will be sung. And so they would... They would sing Psalms 115 to 118, which, are, which is known as the great halal, the great praise. And these psalms may not mean much to us today, but it's important to learn their significance because they were well known to Jesus and his followers. They would have known them by memory. They would have sung them. The Bible even says that, remember, they, they, they left singing a hymn. They left singing praise. That was part of it. So the, the, the Passover supper was a time of celebration. It was a time of freedom. It was a time of recognized. And this was the party cup, as I affectionately call it. Right? So once they drank that cup, they began to sing praise. And at that point, the meal is now finished. And it's interesting that Jesus would have seen his own fate in those singing of hymns. But he tells his boys, he says, hey guys, look, at drink with me tonight, but here's the deal. I'm not going to drink from this. I'm not going to drink, but I will drink with you again later on. What he's saying is, look at guys, I'm going to die. But don't worry, we'll drink together. I'm going to go suffer, i got to go die, but we're going to drink together again. So no matter who you are, where we are, as Christians, we recognize our weaknesses, our sinful mistakes, as Christians, we rec recognize our need for forgiveness. We need to know that our Savior offers a new way of living that can free us from the enslavement to sin. He offers us a daily reminder. It's a lifelong battle that we find ourselves in that we need to rely on Jesus day by day and moment by moment. And for some people, it's minute by minute and seconds by second. But we're also reminded of the third cup. We're constantly reminded that you and I need grace. You and I need forgiveness as often as we participate, interestingly enough, in a meal together. And the party cup is still yet to come. So over and over again in the New Testament, it points back to the Old Testament as the fulfillment of what is being taught. Jesus just said what uh, happened in the Passover was a picture of what He's going to do on the cross. And so that Passover lamb we see happening in Exodus is simply a picture that they were going to celebrate for the next couple of thousand years and understand that in its fullness. They under, will understand that in its fullness when Jesus dies on the cross. And I love the fact that Jesus does this all at dinner. Because here's why. There's something holy about breakfast, lunch, and supper. Not cramming a double Big Mac into your mouth as you're driving in, in your car, but there's something holy getting together with people that you love and having a slow, methodical, foodie experience, is there not? There's something holy that occurs, and when you study the Scripture and we see all the references of food and drink that Jesus makes, it's astounding. I'm the bread of life. He talks about you'll be invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. A man wanted to throw a banquet. Zacchaeus, come, let's eat at your house. Almost sounds like Arnold Schwarzenegger there. You know, I think how often Christ references eating together. 
And so you got to think about it. There's something holy when we come together and eat together. My brother lives in Victoria, and when I go visit, he takes me to his favorite restaurant, J.J. Wonton Noodle House on 4th Street. And there you go, and you sit, and you have what they call a lazy Susan in the center of the table. Now, I don't know who Susan was and why she was lazy and why they named this thing after her, but it's a big, round, wooden thing. What they do is they bring all the food. You place your order, and they bring all the food, and they put it on. And now, if you're a germaphobe, you'll go crazy at this place because you don't get a plate and put your food on it. They just give you chopsticks, and you just spin the lazy Susan, and you pull, and you eat, and it's absolutely fantastic. And you're in no rush to get out. And you sit there, and we eat food, and we tell stories, and we enjoy each other. I noticed that, especially in the Ukraine and in Russia. In Ukraine, when I, James and I went a number of years ago, it was uh, his first introduction to the, the culture. And we, I preached on the Sunday. They took us to a, a restaurant called Compote, and Compote's a type of juice. And they have all these different types of uh, homemade juice that they would make. But it was food. It was a foodie experience. We were in there for five hours. And I'll tell you, it just kept food after food after food. And we just couldn't believe what was going on. And James goes, how come we're, here? Like, how come we're not going to anybody's house? And, of course, one of our, our hosts he, you know, overheard James say this to me. And he says, because our houses are just too small. We couldn't fit all 20 people in our homes. So we come to the restaurant and we take over the restaurant. Five hours. But it was a sacred experience. A sacred experience. You're enjoying each other. There's something holy that happens around the table. Last night we had our life group. Not everybody can make it. So we, what do we do? We sat around the table. There's something holy that takes place there. And it's not surprising to me that Jesus says, you know, what I want this, you know, I want this institute and here's what we're going to call. We're going to call it my last supper. That's what we're going to call it. And it's his invitation for us to feast and, and, and drink up on him. This is my body. Eat it. This is my blood. Drink it. Find your spiritual nourishment in me. Now, here's an interesting thing, because I know some people come because it's Sunday, and that's what they do on Sunday. It's, oh, it's Sunday. Let's go to church. And to be honest, what I've experienced as, as, as a pastor since 1988, gosh, I'm old, is that there are always those who seem to treat attending church, attending a church community like a hobby. A really, really lame hobby, if I need to be honest with you on that one. Because here's what I mean. Is that the Sunday morning experience becomes the extent of their spiritual experience. That's it. We go to church. And when they leave here, they don't have a genuine relationship with Christ. And they're not connected at all. It's just what they do. I've, honestly, I've never really understood that. Because when you think about it, we're not designed to nibble. You know, you and I are designed to feast. To feast. And here's the thing. Church people are jacked up. We are, aren't we? You know, you say potluck, everybody goes crazy. Woo! Of course, there's always salmonella surprise in somebody's group. You know, we're not sure which one. You got to figure that one out. But, you know, we're always going to be jacked. We are a bunch of sinners. We are saved by grace. We're hanging out with each other. That's what we do. But as I've talked with people, as I've built friendships outside of these walls, I've found many people have tried church. I've tried church. I've, I, I've tried Jesus. 
what they've done is they've nibbled, but they've never feasted. They've never dove in. (laughs) Don't you love going to big meals and just diving in? I'm not talking about gluttony. I'm just talking, let's go and feast. You can't help but read scriptures without seeing a feast. Jesus' last supper wasn't just matzah and wine. It was a feast. They ate. The Bible says, he who began a good work in us. In other words, it says, it's not finished yet. Don't act like it's finished. It's a constant that when we sit down together, we know we don't have our stuff together. We know that we need to be reminded that we need his grace. When we have this invitation, a, a constant invitation to feast on him, that means we find our daily sustenance, our spiritual nourishment in him. The crazy thing is, is that at every meal, there's usually bread and something to drink. At every meal, we should be reminded, 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 reminded. You know, I wear a few rings on my hands. Most of them are not a fashion statement. Two of these rings were gifts from my wife. The first one she gave me on our wedding day. Um, it's now a tattooed on my finger because it was my knuckles are, I guess, arthritis and I can't put it on over top and... The second one was given to me in the, after the stillbirth of our, our fifth son, Josiah. And the third one is actually my dad's wedding ring. He used to go, go with this. It just doesn't even get across my knuckle, you know, but it's what it is. Now, of course, there's nothing magical about my rings, right? I don't go invisible when I put one on. I don't rule the universe with them. They're just rings. And honestly, I don't even know if they're all that expensive. I mean, I know I got this thumb ring for 10 bucks off a friend, you know, who's a musician. And, and it's actually made from a spoon, right? Um, if you find it out in the parking lot, you go, oh, look, a ring made from a spoon. How interesting. There's nothing spectacular about it. They're just rings. That's really all they are. But to me, they're more than just rings. The wedding ring and now this tattoo. It's tattooed on me. is a constant reminder of Christ's command on my life to love my wife like Jesus loved the church. It is my wedding ring tattooed on me. And I need that reminder because it's not easy. All the singles are kind of confused at the statement and all the married people go, amen, got your brother. I asked my wife, is it easy to love me? She didn't answer the first gathering, so figure that one out. My confidence just went down. Uh, this one, Josiah, my, I call my Josiah ring. It's there to remind me. That I am to impart the greatness of God to my children. And it reminds me of all my boys and now their wives. It's a constant reminder to be grateful for what I have and the responsibility of what I have. And this gold little pinky ring reminds me of my father's legacy to me. And so every time they clink on glasses, you know, or I shake somebody who wants to be really tough and try to break my hand, I'm awkwardly reminded 
there's a significance going on. So for me, these rings are more than just silver and gold and steel or whatever. They're, they're more than jewelry to me. They're reminders, really, when I think about it, of all of Christ and what he has done and what he has gifted me with my family and my responsibility to lead them and to love them as Christ commands. It's not just jewelry. And so to me, these rings, they're much more than rings. Honestly, they are. The, the same, though, should actually resonate for us when we're about to participate together in what we call the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist. It should be a constant reminder. Our attention should be always drawn there. And these are the words that we use to describe this ritual of bread and wine taken together. Eucharista is the Greek word. Uh, that simply means thanksgiving. It's a moment when the faithful, when the believers are called together to consider the gift of Jesus' presence and sacrifice and give thanks for that gift with a grateful heart. And so in a few minutes, what's going to happen is um, uh, there are going to be a couple of uh, men and women at our communion stations. And they are going to... Uh, uh, take some bread and some wine. And we have the obviously the um, gluten-free option there as well. And they're going to offer it to you. They're going to say, this bread is broken for you. They're going to say, this wine, is, this is Jesus' blood spilt for you. And there's nothing magical about the bread. And there's nothing magical about the juice. It's store-bought, just so that you know. I've been pushing wine, but we're men of Kossels which means you only drink in private, but uh, it's just juice. I just got to put it out there, all right? Eventually, we'll turn it over, but right now, it's just juice. So there's nothing magical about that juice. and It's just bread. It's juice. That's all it is. But to those of us who live by faith, we've been saved by grace, not of ourselves, but because of him, so that nobody to boast. So to us, it's more than just bread, and it's more than just juice. Why? Because we're called back to Matthew chapter 26 to remember. To remember. And I want you to catch this theme at the end. Jesus isn't interested in building a religion. That's not what he's doing. You can go to church your whole life if you want. You can ascribe to every truth of the Christian doctrine and say, look at, well, that's really not for me and be lost. You can be perfect in your morality and still be lost. Christ doesn't come to build moral people. He comes to save them and change their souls. And so Jesus, he takes the bread that night, and it must have been so confusing what was going on, and he broke it. He said, this is my body. Take and eat. And then he takes that cup, and he says, this is my blood. On top of that, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And then he says, listen, you're going to want to remember this moment because the next day, when you think about it for Jesus, the next day, the most paradoxical moment in history would occur. 100% complete love was going to collide with complete wrath on the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I know we live in 2019, and for whatever reason, it's a popular opinion that, you know, God is not angry with sin anymore, and even if there was such thing as sin... But you need to look no further than the cross of Jesus. Because in the death of Jesus Christ, you find all the wrath of God towards mankind and their sin. 
and the love of God despite your sin. And that's the paradoxical moment. That's actually hard for us to get our head around. All his wrath, all his love, all at one moment. And Jesus was saying to them and to us, remember, (coughs) don't forget how much I hate sin. But don't forget how much I love you despite your sin. Don't forget those two things. So we're going to do some of that today. We're going to do some remembering. And we're going to do it together. Now, the first Christians, they didn't have churches or buildings or any sacred structures. Their only sacred space was actually the table. And the first followers would gather around that common table to worship and to praise and to share a meal. And sacred space is wherever we gather to worship and praise and break bread together. So welcome to sacred space today. And we as a church always need to be reminded that when Jesus takes the cup, he says that this cup is the new covenant. That the old way is gone. What's that old way of being? The old way was that rigid law system that made you with discipline and white-knuckled morality. Jesus goes, no, there's a new way. I'm going to change your heart. Did you hear that? It's not a rigid set of rules that have to be followed. It's the Holy Spirit awakening our soul. And Jesus says, I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to change your heart so that you'll love what, what pleases me. You'll hate what I hate. And listen, you know why I need to, to think on that when we do communion. Because in some ways it's so true. In some ways, honestly, I'm so far off from that. You ever been like that? I can't approach the table. Anybody with me on that? And yet Jesus, gosh, who did he hand the bread to? The betrayer. Take, eat. This is my body. No, no, no. Come. You need this. My redemption, my, my forgiveness. So the table's open. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to pray and I'm going to say amen. The moment I say amen, you'll, you'll notice that there will be four people uh, standing at their stations, two at each station. They're going to present to you the bread. They're going to present to you the wine. I want you to take it. I want you to eat it right there. And then go to your, back to your seat. While you're doing that, you can go into a time of prayer. You can sing songs with the, the worship team. And as we sing, let's be reminded of the fact that the the table is there for forgiveness. Remember what Jesus did for you and for me. Remember that there's more at play here. That we're actually in this together. And so you may want to gather together with somebody, maybe with a friend. Let's just pray for each other. It is church. And this is how the Eucharist works. This is how it all works. For somebody to receive, somebody has to give for someone to be fed somebody has to provide the food if someone is inspired which means life has been breathed into them then somebody else has had that life breathed out if someone somewhere benefits then someone somewhere has paid something 
So God gives the world life through the breaking of Christ's body and the pouring out of Christ's blood, and God continues to give the world life through the body of Christ. Paul tells his friends in Corinth, he says, we are the body, we are the body of Christ. Anne Lamont has one of the most powerful sermons in this little thing called Me Too. It's not what the Me Too politics of the day, but Me Too. When you're struggling, when you're hurting, when you're wounded, limping, doubting, questioning, when you're barely hanging on, moments away from another relapse, and somebody can identify with you, someone knows the temptations that are at your door, someone has felt the pain that you're feeling, when someone can look you in the eyes and say, me too, and they actually mean it, it can save you. When you aren't judged or lectured or looked down upon, but somebody demonstrates that they get it, that they know what it's like, that you're not alone, that's me too. The power of the table comes from its weakness, not its strength. And it's in our weakness that we, that he is made strong, that others are drawn to him. And if you're a believer here and you're visiting, we're glad that you're here. We know that we're a mess. We know that we're loud. We know all that stuff. We're just glad you're here. And my invitation is that you, would you please do communion with us? Right? Because the same Jesus that saved you, that saved you has, has saved these young men and women. And we're all in this together. If you're here and you're not a believer and somebody brought you, maybe it was a friend or family, and they invited you, let me just explain something. First of all, I am thrilled that you're here. I'm never going to disrespect you or your life or what you're doing. But to be honest, in a church setting, I'm always going to present the gospel. I'm going to let Jesus take care of the rest. I'll talk to you about the rhythms of the universe, so to speak, how things at the deepest level of the universe, you know, uh, uh, regarding the scriptures and how they appeal to us and uh, speak to us. But here's the thing about communion today. Communion is a very sacred deal for those of us who know Christ. So again, I'm glad that you're here. You're invited into this place to go as deep as you want to go. But here's the thing. Because communion is serious for us, I ask that you respect that as well. If you're simply on the sidelines with this whole Jesus and God thing, you know, you're just, I'm checking it out, I'm kicking tires. I'd simply actually encourage you just to sit back, relax, and to watch. Just take it all in. That's, that's totally cool. That's, that's because it, although it's just bread and juice, right, it, it's, it's much more than that. So I just need to say nobody's watching, nobody's judging, nobody's seeing who's getting up and sitting down. We're just simply glad that you're here. But if you're not sold in, just hang on. But maybe you're sitting here and you're feeling it. You're, there's something tugging at your heart. Or maybe, maybe there are tears in your eyes. Or maybe there's this thing about forgiveness that's just running rampant through your heart. Maybe you want to have a conversation first with your friend or family member that you came with. Maybe you want to just in this moment as we start moving, you have the time. Maybe you just want to tell them what's going on inside of you. And maybe, just maybe, the two of you would go to the table and experience the grace of Jesus together. Because I'm glad that you're here. And I don't ever want to make anyone feel like you're not a part of because I honestly want to see everybody in the kingdom of God. So wherever you fall, identify yourself and then move in that direction. The scriptures on the night 
that Jesus was arrested, he took the bread and he blessed it. And he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the same way he took that cup and he blessed it and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. And he gave it to them to drink. So let us participate together. Father, I thank you for freedom. Freedom that goes well beyond what any government can establish. And I thank you for an independence that goes well beyond the political process. And so today we celebrate you. And we celebrate what you've done for us and who we are in you. And we remember, God. We remember your broken body. We remember your shed blood, how it was spilt and spent for the glory of the Father and the salvation of many sons and daughters. And so be exalted in our hearts and stir in us gratitude and an understanding of what we found ourselves cut off in. And I, and God, I don't know if you hadn't intervened where we'd be. So Father, I pray that as we eat the bread and wine, that those thoughts would be in our heads and in our hearts and that we might find our souls welling up simply in gratitude. For this I ask in your beautiful name. Amen.
In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving blessing did likewise. Please stand with me if you'd like to receive blessing today. Soul Sanctuary, be reminded that the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you. And because of that, we can walk in peace amid chaos. We can walk in love amidst hate. We can walk in joy amidst sorrow. And we can walk in faith amidst doubt. We can walk in hope amidst despair. And walk in wisdom amidst confusion. And we can walk in courage amidst all fear. Now go and go and live the church. Be blessed. We'll see you next week.